Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, as someone I know likes to say. This is Nina Lockwood, and we are at episode four of our Creativity Conversations. And I have the very distinct pleasure of introducing Kat Coppett, our guest today. Kat is, and I'm going to read her bio, the eponymous founder of Coppet, an organizational development company specializing in blending traditional organizational development tools and principles with cutting edge improvisation and storytelling techniques to enhance individual and group performance. She holds a BFA from NYU and an MA in organizational psychology from Columbia. Her book, Training to Imagine, Practical Improvisational Theater Techniques to Enhance Creativity, Teamwork, Leadership, and Learning is considered a seminal work in the field of applied improv and is used by professionals around the world. In addition, Kat is a certified professional co-active coach and the co-director of the Mopco Improv Theater. So welcome, Kat. Hi, Nina. Hi, everyone. Nice to have you here. What does MOPCO stand for? MOPCO is a shortening of the Mop and Bucket Improv Theater, uh, which was a little ragtag improvisational theater company, um, which sort of begs the question, what is the Mop and Bucket? Why the Mop and Bucket Improv Theater Company? And um, I'm told that uh, there is no really good story. It was just when the group of improvisers came together. This was before my time when Michael Burns had the first incarnation of the Mop and Bucket Company. He, the group of improvisers got in a room together and decided they had to name their company, which is always a thing. And it was the only name on the list that everyone could agree they didn't hate. So they called themselves the Mop and Bucket Company. Um, We've had contests over the years to come up with a good story about the Mop and Bucket name. A lot of people think, associate it with Carol Burnett, sort of mopping up at the end of her comedy show, for those right. of you who are old enough to remember that. Got it. Well, for those of you who are uh, on the call with us, we are going to spend about a half an hour or so just ch chatting about Kat and her wild and crazy experiences in life and then we'll open it up to any questions or uh, comments that people have. So Kat, tell us how you got to be here from where you were. You started out as an actress? I did um, from, from a very young age. I think that what I, when I was seven I was um, Happy the Dwarf in Snow White and um, which sort of started me on the path of realizing that I wasn't the pretty ingenue in scripted theater. Um, uh, although it took me a long time to sort of reconcile with that. And it kind of previewed my life as a sort of serious actor. I, I went on to be in scripted, serious scripted theater um, and went to conservatory. As you read, I went to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. But um, at some point switched over and discovered improvisational theater, which were very separate worlds at the time. Not now they're more integrated, but back then they were very separate worlds. And part of the reason as I'm listening to myself tell the story this way, this time is that um, I wasn't, you know, I had my, an agent once tell me that I just wasn't pretty enough to be an ingenue. And, um, uh, again, especially back then and sort of in the 80s, everybody in Hollywood, you know, was like perfectly symmetrical and perfectly um, blonde. And, uh, you know, otherwise you were the best friend or, you know. So, but in, but in improv, I could be anything, you know, I could be anything I wanted to be from, from the pretty... From, from the pretty one to an 80-year-old man. And uh, so that was exciting. The other thing about that got me sort of from scripted theater into improvisational theater, well, there were two other things, I think. One was it was the place where repertory theater lived. 
uh, where there were communities of people who are coming together and you didn't just spend your life auditioning for role after role, but you would join a company and then be part of that company and you would create theater together. And, and the third was, I think what really what our topic is today was the creative process and accessing your own spontaneity and, um, creative juice was something that improvisers had figured out how to teach people how to do. Whereas in acting conservatory, if you were, uh, if they didn't quite know how to teach it. Yeah. I can talk more about that. But. Well, I, you and I have had that conversation initially about creativity. And so I'm really well, there's a lot of ways to go in this conversation, but yeah. what I'm, um, what I really would love to pick your brain about is where does creativity come from, mm. and how how do you access it? What gets in your way? What what keeps it juicy and flowing? Well, you know, I mean, Elizabeth Gilbert would say it's floating around out there, and you just do your work, and it sort of swoops in and. You know, if you're lucky, the muse comes and visits you, right? As opposed to something that we individually have, that we own. We just uh, open ourselves up and it will sort of come and visit us. I think from the, what we believe as improvisers, I think is that human beings are just innately creative, that we all are creative and that mostly the work to access our creativity is an exercise in letting go and uh, releasing judgment and inhibition and paying more attention to what's there as opposed to making stuff. Sometimes when we, I think we think about creativity as um, creating and it becomes a sort of doing action or uh, making something from nothing. And I think what I, I think a lot of artists would say, certainly in improv, because we're doing it on the spot, right? We don't have an option to edit or fix or rehearse. We're doing it in the moment. The product is the process, right? Um, we practice things like um, just noticing more, both internally and externally, and then accepting whatever there, whatever that that is, and building with it. So that's a process of bypassing your sensor and letting it go, and realizing that it's enough and that everything's delicious. I love what you're saying, and it sure sounds to me like what you're saying is a good recipe for the way to live life. <laughs> well, you know, in this moment what we, the song we've been singing is a song that a lot of people are recognizing is of, of value um, in this particular moment in our world because there, there, there was this illusion for a while there that we could know what was coming next. We never really did, right? Um, but it could feel like tomorrow was going to be similar today or that you could forecast what six months from now would be like. And right now, globally, we're sort of in this moment where we're realizing that we don't know that and we can't predict and we can't plan. And um, so, yeah, it's a great way to live life. It's just like what, what is here in this moment, what's happening, what exists and, um, how can I accept and build with that, even if it's not what I was anticipating or maybe even not what I prefer? Yeah. So it, it requires uh, a certain flexibility and a willingness, maybe you could say, to let go of our uh, preconceived notions of what should be happening or what's acceptable. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the reason that improvisers get especially good at that and, or have those muscles, especially exercises because we're co-creating in the moment, you know, most of the time as improvisers, we're doing it in, collaboratively with other people. 
Which is the way we do it in life too, right? Most of the time we're... Yeah, that was going to be my next, <laughs> yeah. that was going to be my next question because we are co-creating in life and uh, in conversation, certainly, but with the everyday, what do I do with myself? What do I do next? It seems like that's the same. It's the same uh, response, which I'd love you to talk about, which is the yes and. Mm in improv so this is the you know this is the sort of um the star of improv it's sort of the improv principle that's made it in the world out there in the world everybody knows about yes and and it's really a very uh complicated little phrase um, it's not as simple as it sounds so the let's take the the word separately so the yes means i accept what exists and the and means i'm going to build with it or add or give something back um and it's jargon really right it it's uh it, it you we can unpack it it has a lot of meaning sort of in its context um here's what it well so let's so let's take it step by step um on one level it actually does mean we want to be positive and look for things that we can agree with, right? So on the simplest level, it, it means what it sounds like it means. So if I'm in a scene um, with a scene partner on stage and my scene partner says, hi, honey, I'm home, right? and they walk into the scene, then there's a whole bunch of information that my partner has now set out in the scene that it is my obligation to yes and, to accept as the reality of the scene, because that's all I've got, and then to build with. Um, and in that sense, I'm agreeing, like I'm agreeing that I'm, there's a honey, right? I'm agreeing that this is our home. Now there's an infinite number of ways that I can do that. Mm -hmm. But if I say something like, you know, this is in our home, what are you talking about? This is a bus station. Then I've, I've blocked that and we can't really move forward. Now I could, it could, if I want it to be a bus station, I could say like, hi, you know, oh, honey, welcome back to our, you know, it's so, you know, we're so lucky to have this bus station as a place to live where most people don't have any kind of shelter at all. Like I could do that, but I have to accept this is our home. So that's, that's the agreement part. When we do it in real life with uh, our organizational clients, the way Yes And was first brought into organizational life was with that level of agreement. So we used it for brainstorming, you know, organizations accepted it as like, we'll generate ideas. Yes, you know, let's have a party. Yes, and we could have lots of food. Yes, and we'll have a big band, right? Building on each other's ideas as opposed to saying, no, I don't like your idea. And I could talk about that for an hour and a half, just that part of it, it saying yes instead of saying no. It also means something deeper than that though which is not just agreeing, but really at a deeper level, accepting what exists, even if you don't like it. And that's where the work both sort of in life and on stage gets really interesting, which is even if I'm not literally agreeing with what you say, what can I find to accept or build with? So if someone says, I want you to come work with me and I don't, I want you to do it for free. And I know that I, I can't right now work for free in this context for this person. Is there something that I can accept underneath that? So maybe I say, well, tell me about free. Why do you want me to work for free? And they say, well, I, you know, I just feel like, you know, I deserve a break. <laughs> you know, I want to get a good deal. And I can go like, well, oh, so let's talk about the value proposition. Right? Or if they say, I'm special, I'm your relative, so I want to feel like you care, I care about, you care about me. You know, so I can find maybe something to accept and build with. Or I can say, oh, you don't have any money. Let's see what we could exchange for in-kind value if it's a question of cash. So instead of rejecting it outright, you're exploring it to see where you can find some possibility in that yeah. scenario. We have a we have a word, a technical term in improv called an offer, which is anything that my partner says or does, anything that exists. So in that example, 
I said a lot of stuff in a sort of messy way right there in that answer because it's because I have you know like a year and a half of a century and a half of stuff in my head about yes and but what I'm trying to get to is that even if I can't agree with the position that someone's saying what I'm looking for is what are the offers that I can build with right yeah. on stage in a scene if someone says you know, oh, your home, uh, your home, honey, you've got home so soon. Please don't look in the closet. There's nothing in the closet, right? I'm not going to agree, say, okay, I won't look in the closet, but I'm going to accept the offer, which is I should probably look in the closet. They're hiding something, right? So there's a secret so, offer. Right. So what I'm looking for is what can I accept and build with? I don't like that there's a pandemic right now. I don't agree that it's a good thing that there's this awful pandemic, but it exists. How do I accept that, that we're all stuck here inside in our homes? How do I accept it and build with it? Maybe I start a podcast on, or a webinar series on creativity so that I can access the world and have a yeah. conversation about it. So actors don't really have much of an option, or at least improv actors don't really have that much of an option to say no, do they? Well, it depends what you mean by saying no. And I think this is this distinction, right? We get to, we are obligated, if we're doing it well, to accept the offers that our partner has presented in a scene. We haven't, but sometimes the character is saying no to the other character, even if the actor is accepting the offer that the other actor is making. And, and I'll go even one step further there. You know, one of the, one of the topics that's come up in the world of, uh, in the world of improv is how can this principle of yes and on stage and off be twisted so that it becomes collusion in a bad way, right? In the era of Me Too, how does, how does the idea of yes and intersect with power dynamics mm. so that people feel like they aren't free to say no? Because saying no is very important, right? Um, there's lots of situations in which people shouldn't feel, if you, you know, if you don't have the option to say no, then it's not really consent, right? If we take it. Um, so one of the things we talk about in this context is whether you're on stage or off, how can you accept and build with what's happening in a way that also doesn't violate your own boundaries and your own core yeses? Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a scene, and this happens all the time on an improv stage, right, historically, if I'm in a scene and my <laughs> partner says to me, hey, baby, come over here and sit on my lap and, you know, show me a good time. And I don't want to say yes to that. How do I yes and as an actor in the scene without saying yes in a way that crosses my boundary, right? And there are lots of ways. One of them is to say, ugh, that's disgusting, you dirty old man. I don't want to sit on your lap which is a no is the character, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't break any of the rules of like the reality of the scene, right? If I'm a cocktail waitress and he's a customer, right? Or I could even say, no, you know, you're, we just had a big fight. I don't feel like being sexy with you, honey, right? Because that's real. And we think, so we, we can expand in our creativity. We can access what's really true for us in the moment and yes, and our authentic response, and just use it in the reality of the scene. And sometimes we forget that we can do that. So rather than, so a yes, and could mean engagement, but not agreement. Exactly right. Yeah. Acceptance and building with what exists, it doesn't have to mean agreement. Exactly right. So that's, a, that's actually a, a a good point, both uh, for people who are not actors, um, although on one level, you could say we're all actors in life. We do. In terms <laughs> of being creative, that it's a very similar principle, right? That we've got, we've got a situation. 
every moment. And what's rather than retreating into our own thinking that this, it shouldn't be this way, or I can't do it, to be able to turn that yes and offer into a, a form of engagement where it allows me to still participate and move forward and create, but on different terms. Exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think it's especially important in life, right? I mean, it, it makes for more interesting scenes on stage if I can um, find ways to oh. accept and build that aren't just saying, oh, yes, 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 to everything. In life, it, it's extraordinarily important, right? I mean, the yes hand principle in some ways is very superficial if it just means, I'm going to use it to brainstorm and say, oh, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. No, no, let me go back. I, I think there are plenty of situations in which yes, and as agreement is very powerful, right? Because many of us have been trained to think that being smart means saying no, right? That being smart means shooting holes in other people's ideas or finding out what's wrong with things whether we do it to ourselves with the sensors in our heads, like I'm going to get smart and grow and critique my own work or say, Oh, what was, went wrong so I can get it better as opposed to, Ooh, what's working here. Or what can I do more of, or how do I build with that? Um, so David Kelly, who started IDEO, the idea generation company, the design firm and the design school at Stanford is a mechanical engineer. And he said, I had the smartest, kids in the world were coming into my school and that's what they thought being smart was, was shooting holes in other people's ideas. So he started this creativity firm to switch that thinking, to say, what can I build with instead of what, what can I find wrong with that idea? So this simple idea of agreement, finding out what can I literally say yes to is great, but that's a limited use if we go to this next level of what can I accept and build with? I think it makes it even richer. Yeah. That's terrific. It's reminding me, although this may be a little bit to the side, of a, a quote that I heard um, attributed to uh, a coach named Steve Hardison, who uh, with one of his clients who was... Uh, telling him a lot of his problems, uh, Steve Hardison said, okay, so given the circumstances as you're describing it, what would you like to create? And I just, I thought that was the most transformative statement because it took the power out of the problem That's and beautiful. into what you wanted to create. It's beautiful. And I, what I love about that is in, inherent in that is this idea of acceptance. Yeah. Because we're, we're screwed if we don't have some way to go forward. We just get stuck in, a, in backwater and then we stay there for a really long time. Yeah. I had a, a great uh, mentor and um, director in an improv company that I was in, Freestyle Repertory Theater in New York, which I'm now getting to work with again because we're all working in virtual space together. Um, Laura Livingston, who used to say, you know, there are an infinite number of numbers. One, two, three. There are also an infinite number of numbers between one and two. It's just a different size, infinite. So we start on stage with nothing defined for us, we have an infinite number of possibilities. As soon as someone says, hi, honey, I'm home, there's a much smaller definition. Now I, now I have a certain subset of right answers or offers that I can make, something that I have to yes and, right? So I wanted a pirate ship. Okay, now maybe I'm in an apartment after a few lines, whatever. But I still have an infinite number of choices. So sometimes I think we can think of this like, oh, I have to accept this, or here's my reality. Yeah, okay, I have limited choices, but I can still have an infinite number of choices within those limitations. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrific. Tell me about how you went from and where you saw the need for taking this 
these set of skills from the stage to business. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. My students did. So I was, uh, I was teaching English as a second language. I was telling you, I think right before we started that um, I was teaching English as a second language as a day job. That's how I got from Kathy to Kat, my Russian students had trouble with the TH. So they started calling me Kat, which was way cooler than Kathy. So I switched over. Um, and so I was teaching English as a second language as my day job. I was working with the improv company and my improv students started saying things to me like, you know, I wish my boss knew this yes and idea and would respond to my ideas by yes anding them instead of shutting them down. Or I wish my team would collaborate and sort of co-create the way we did here in this class. You should come and you guys should come and teach a workshop for us. And because I was working at the, at this point I was training teachers in the English as a second language school because I had that sort of low level organizational development, train the trainer skill. My improv company sent me in to do the team building and leadership training stuff. Um, I had that level of instructional design experience. So I started doing it and, you know, uh, I was, it wasn't quite this cynical, but it was sort of like, okay, I'm a starving actor and corporations have money. Oh, no. um, so you said yes and? I said, sure, okay, why not? It's fun, you know, I'll teach improv to anyone. But very quickly I was, um, you know, and that's the good story version. As I said, I was already sort of in this day job t training trainers and I'd met some other folks who were, I was starting to do some um, people skills training at Cornell. So I sort of had this happening over here on the side a little bit, and I was seeing the integration. I was seeing the application through a bunch of different threads about how we are all improvising all the time. We're all communicating. We're all in little improvisational scenes. So it wasn't quite as clean as I'm making for the story, but I was seeing it everywhere I was starting to see it. My students were seeing it. They pulled me in. And then very quickly, I, I said to myself, I, I don't want to be selling snake oil. I don't want to be doing it just because, you know, I'm a starving actor and they have money. I, I want to know what I'm talking about. So I went back to Columbia and I got the master's in organizational psychology, mostly to test, most, to figure out what was out there and what did other people know about training and development, but also to kind of test whether what we thought we were doing had any validity. And I don't know, six weeks into this two-year program, very, very quickly, I found out that, oh, yes, of course, we're onto something. Um, first of all, because there were so many things as actors and performers that we took for granted around just uh, being seen and heard and having the opportunity to express ourselves in these sort of playful ways that most people were starving for. They were just starving for it. Um, so I felt like we just had this huge well. And the way we say it now is that improv is the gym for exercising these muscles that everybody was talking about the ideas, but they didn't know how to actually exercise the skills. Mm -hmm. They were just talking about them. And we knew how to build the muscles of listening and paying attention and being spontaneous and um, connecting and co-creating. Again, all of those qualities that are relevant for an individual as well as for people in organizations, even though many of those organizations on the surface say, no, everything is cut and dried. It should be this way. We do it things our way. Uh, without many of the components that you're talking about. So I'm curious what happened when you took improv into business and what were the changes that they saw in their businesses? Well, I, I mean, I think it's what I just said. I think a lot of, you know, and it's different now, right? When I wrote the first edition of my book about applying improv in business in 2001, the publisher bought the book um, Stylus Publishing had written a book about 
training using story, which is why I approached them. And he was like, yeah, you can't do it with improv though. And I said, sure you can. Here's how you would do it. And he said, okay. And he bought it, which was great. But he wouldn't let me put improv in the title, which is why it has this funny title, Training to Imagine, and a very long subtitle. Because they were like, nobody's going to buy a book about improv. This was 2001. Hmm. And it was very fringe and very fluffy. That is not true now. Now it's almost passe to use improv, right? Um, there's a, a, I'm, you know, an officer of the Applied Improvisation Network, which has over 7,000 practitioner members in it globally. It, it's not, you know, everybody gets that improv is useful. But, but even more importantly, I think that um, what organizations have realized is Organizations know that listening is important for leaders. Organizations know that collaborating is something that they need their teams to be able to do. They know that um, having presence, right, is, is something that people need. They know that now, now people are talking about things like flexibility, resilience, um, adaptability, uh, um, courage. Right? These are all words that companies know. They're qualities that they look for. What, what they don't know so much and why improv, whether we talk about it explicitly as improv or whether we bring it in subversively, because sometimes we mention the word and sometimes we don't. We have all sorts of programs and tools and models that never actually talk about improv per se. Um, is they don't know they don't know how to move it from ideas right from knowledge that's on a page to how do you exercise it right how do you build the skill that's and exactly what i was going to ask you so if you go in there and you teach show demonstrate them do they actually are they actually able to embody it in their relationships within an organization, as well as to the challenges that they face as an organization. Right. Well, it's a practice, right? I mean, we, we practice it and teach it and have been now for, what, 30, 25, 30 years. And we're not always great at it. <laughs> no, listening is hard. Listening is hard. It's a practice. Um, so organizations that really value it and embed it and find ways to support each other and practice it um, are better at it than um, organizations that say, oh yeah, listening and have us come do a one-off training for a half a day and then never talk about it again. Right. So do you put in, do you put in, uh, I was going to say follow-up, but how, when you're teaching this within a, a business context, is there anything that you include so that they can actually live it in their everyday practices? Or do you think that, how do you think it works best for people to get these ideas and actually begin to live with them, live, yeah. live them in their in their business place, in their workplace? What, what do you think is necessary? Well, you know, so, you know, just, I mean, we're talking learning theory in some ways now, right? So it's like there's knowledge, skills, and mindsets, right? And then there's architecture, right? So to some extent, you have an ability or you don't in some of these things. But for the most part, in terms of the things that we can affect, um, and, and there's the individual architecture, but there's also the system. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're talking about right now in the world is how much is not about an individual and not about knowledge, skills, or mindset. It's about the system, right? Yeah. And the structure that you're within. So if you have a system that's rewarding certain behaviors, it doesn't matter how much you train people or inform them about other behaviors, they're going to do what's you know, what's rewarded and encouraged and supported, right? Absolutely. Um, so that's a whole, that's a whole other com conversation. Maybe it's not a whole other conversation. I mean, it, one of the things that we wrestle with is if we're, you know, are we being, do we feel 
confident that we're being used for good and not for evil and that we're not, um, you know, someone's not just checking a box. This becomes incredibly important, you know, if they're bringing us in to do any kind of inclusion work, you know, we don't want to cause more harm than good, mm -hmm. which we can. Uh, but even if, you know, we're just doing like leadership development or team alignment, those kinds of things, there's, there's those three pieces, right? So sometimes just giving people information can be super helpful. You know, you can give someone an article to read or a piece of information and they go like, oh, that's a whole new idea. I never knew that before. Here's some words I can use. And then they use those words and they're more effective because they have words to use, right? Like you can, someone can read about open-ended questions versus closed-ended questions and start using open-ended questions and have a whole bunch of different, you know, or even read about an activity for opening up creativity and do it themselves and they and their team, you know, have better brainstorming sessions. Uh, so knowledge can be great. Uh, sometimes in our world, I think it's underrated. Uh, and then there's skills and skills are things you have to practice, right? Like we could go in and do a one day training on playing the violin. Nobody's going to be a concert violinist. They're going to have to take it upon themselves to practice and they probably need a violin teacher and, there are some organizations and some individuals that we have coaching relationships with. And over time we coach them long-term and they make progress in that way on whatever they need to work on individually or as teams. And we develop those relationships with them and we diagnose what they need as individuals and we coach them over time. Um, and, and the third piece is mindset. Right? And, and that is, that's about understanding the value of the skill or shift and feeling it, feeling the impact of it, right? And experiencing what it feels like to do it differently, both from the receiving end and, and from the trying it on. And what, what the mindset shift is about, again, is sort of about really seeing the value of it so that you will then be motivated to exercise the muscle or build the skill over time. Yeah, that, that to me uh, begs the question about how anything becomes, any idea becomes something that we can actually embody. And it seems to me until we have some insight into the value of something and how it can potentially change our lives for the better, till we have that aha moment, oh, I could be, I could be having a V8. You know, I could do, this would change my life. Until we have that, it's just kind of a dog and pony show. Just come in, we say, this is how you can do it. This is how things will be different. But if people are just taking it in on the level of information, it's going to stay at a very limited level of understanding. But if they see the application, it changes everything. Right. Well, and, and so, you know, Virtually all of our programs, even, you know, these kinds of, even in this space are 80, 90% experiential. So we give people an experience and then they debrief it. And then it's usually some kind of um, game or activity kind of experience that we then debrief and then a different kind of experience where they're applying it in a much more high fidelity kind of way in organizations, right? In the organizations. So um, so we'll play an improv game, we'll say, what was that like? What were the principles? What did you get? Okay. Now what does that look like in your world? Yeah. And, um, and it, that's what it's all about, right? Sometimes we're coming in, people have a very strong felt need, right? They'll be like, this team, you know, is not aligned. We can't talk to each other people feel excluded, right? Or we can't get any work done or we have to have, um, you know, we're not selling enough. We need to be more connected to our clients so that we can sell them more. And there's a really strong self felt need. Sometimes not, you know, sometimes people are like, I don't why do I need to tell better stories? I don't get it. What's the big deal with storytelling? And then we have to like spark their interest. Yeah. We are opening up the conversation to anyone who is listening right now. So feel free to unmute yourself and ask away if you have a question or a comment. And I Hi, will... Kat. Hi, Lucia. Hi, Kat. So I did do a couple of your improv classes 
with Michael and you may have been there a couple times. And I do remember that one of the things that comes up often mm. is that people try ahead of time. They have something in their mind before it's supposed to happen. They're thinking, I'm going to do this. But then when they get the offer, it doesn't make any sense because they've thought about it and it doesn't fit what they were going to do. So they, they have to be open, right? Yeah. That's hard, right? Right. And there's some really good exercises that you guys had up on stage for where you don't start to have preconceived thoughts before the next thing happens. It just is just in life. It probably is applicable too. And um, I do some visual arts and sometimes I'm trying to do, okay, I'm going to do, I want to just let myself go. And then I look at it and I, I start to edit it. And it's like, well, okay, I have the option to edit it. It's good to be able to edit it. What if I do this instead of that? There's a, in improv on the stage, there's a and if, isn't there? Uh, you know, after you do the yes and, you can elaborate more and say if afterwards. Yeah, and because of that, we say a lot. Yeah, and then if then, yeah. That's right. That's if then. Yeah. Okay. I don't know that I really have a question except for maybe, right. is there something we can do to stop us from, before you finish talking, I'm starting to think of things to say to you. I don't want to do that. Are, are there some exercises? Well, one of my favorite ones that I've been doing a lot in this space right now is, um, the, is the last letter or sound of the person's sentence that you're speaking to has to become the first letter or sound of the sentence that you start with. <laughs> That'll narrow you down. <laughs> there you go. You just did it. So I said with, and you said that'll narrow you down. So you oh, could. good. I didn't even know. I'm unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's good. Okay. That's a great point about uh, going into anything with a preconceived idea. And uh, we, what we already want to say before the person has even finished what they're trying to say. And I've noticed that sometimes just even catching the fact that I'm doing that, uh, then it loses its power over me. It's like, oh, that's going on again. Okay. And it, just by the noticing, it brings me back. Nina, did you do an a article about that in one of your blogs? I might have. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we—I think that that happens so much, you know, where because there's a part of us that wants to figure everything out and control it ahead of time and make sure it goes smoothly and we're safe and you know all will be well. And yet we have no idea. We've made that uh, made up this scenario in our head, and then we live into the problems that are going to happen with the scenario that we create. I think controlling is the bottom, one of the bottom lines of that thing. You want to feel like you're in charge. You're not willing to accept somebody else's feedback, inputs. And it's, it goes back to our earlier conversation with Kat about uh, being open to the flow of life coming through us, coming through any situation, coming through a piece of art that we're doing. Because how much are we really in control? of anything. We spend a whole lot of time talking about it or wanting to be that way. And yet it spends an awful lot of our precious energy that keeps us from actually being created. So it defeats the purpose altogether. Are you familiar with the uh, right brain, left brain ideas and creative writing and stuff along that line? Sure. Because there's exercises for writing uh, where you just go and free, freely write without editing yourself. And probably that coincides with being on stage and doing improv and being on the paper doing art. I mean, it all, and music, if you have the skills to improvise on music. So all of those art forms, right? Yeah, it's great. One of my favorite writing exercises, if you're alone, is to, um, although it's even better if you have two of you, like if the two of you could do this together because you keep each other honest, is to count out loud from 50 to 1 while you're writing and that'll keep your sort of sensor brain your left brain busy while you're writing 
So give yourself a topic or maybe just free write and say like 50, 49, 48, and try to write on a topic while you I don't know how to do that. That that sounds like it'd be harder. (laughs) I could do it with painting or drawing or something, but writing words, it's like count two. That would be hard. Right. I don't think I could uh, count backwards even without writing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So Kat, I have a question. Thank you so much, Lucia and Tanya for asking that. Um, What do you, what do you think about, going back to the idea of creativity in general and how we encourage it or discourage it. Do you think that there are any particular um, mindsets or practices that can encourage creativity in us or uh, discourage it? Well, I mean, sure. I think anything that allows us to notice more uh, and then build with, I mean, it's really, I'm talking about yes and, aren't I? I mean, I think that anything that allows us to notice more and then use without censoring, without responding, that's what what our creativity is. So I think there are two, when you say creativity to me, I think there are two muscles that I would want to exercise, to exercise my creativity. Um, And it's not exactly what I studied. You know, when I studied creativity in graduate school, there was one study that was part of one survey course. It was Teresa Mabale's study on creativity. And she very explicitly was like, it's only an individual quality. You can't have group creativity. There's no such thing. And then whatever else she said about it, I can't remember what she said about it. She had certain qualities about it. But it was all about original thought. And when people talk about creativity, they really focus on, you know, it has to be some kind of, original, um, interesting. Like these are all the things that people want to put on creativity. And I think it's terribly self-defeating because we are um, terrible judges of what original thought is. By definition, um, if we start to think about, is this original? We're working at cross purposes with our own uh, uniqueness right? Because if it's, if it's my unique voice, it's going to feel natural to me and it's going to come organically for me. And it might even seem obvious to me because that's my unique voice that is mine. But if I try to be original or I try to be unique or I try to be creative, um, I'm most likely, ironically, to be um, derivative (laughs) because what I'm doing when I have that thought in my head is rejecting what's most obvious and most organic to me to reach for something that feels far away or different, which means I'm most likely to come up with something that's outside of myself, which means I got it from someone else. Um, So you're already putting a a filter on the channel. Right. And the only way I can do that is to like go outside, which means I'm going to be borrowing from something that already exists from the outside. So in improv, we talk about daring to be obvious, daring to be boring, right? Daring to be foolish, daring to be outrageous, right? So all of the places where you start to go like, oh, like that little voice in your head goes like, I don't know about this. One of my favorite stories is um, Lynn Moran, Lynn Manuel Miranda talks about um, when he got the idea for Hamilton. So he was at an airport and he picked up the, the biography, the Hamilton biography, the Chernow biography. And um, he started reading it and he thought, this guy, his life is like, he's like a rap star. Hamilton, like his life reads like the biography of a rap star. And he thought it was such an obvious idea, Hamilton, as a, like a rap musical about Hamilton. He thought it was such an obvious idea that he went online to search for Hamilton rap musicals because he was sure someone had already done it. And he was shocked 
that it hadn't already been done. Now, we all know <laughs> that um, that the reaction when it came out, which is everybody was like, it's hard to remember, but now that everybody was like, what? That's crazy, right? Like Hamilton, rap? Like, can you think of two things that are less? But the reason that it was brilliant and he could do it was because it was so obvious an idea to him. So to get back to your... He didn't yeah. have a filter. He didn't have a filter. I mean, it was just so obvious to him. And that's why it was great, right? So I think getting back to your question, the way to exercise your creativity or build your own creativity is to A, follow your bliss. Like if it's interesting to you, do that. Don't try to, don't try to go like what's going to sell or what are people going to be interested in or what's good or what's interesting. Do what your, find your vein of gold, right? That's Julia Cameron. Find Your Vein of Gold. Her classic book, um, The Artist's Way, is a great way to start to find that. Yeah. It's a great course, The Artist's Way. Do that. Um, but really what that's about is finding out a couple of things. What, are, what am I excited about? What am I passionate about? And then getting out of your own way. Like, don't censor it. Don't judge it. Don't worry about what other people are going to think. And just go. I love, I love that, getting out of your own way. It's the same thing as being willing to suspend our preconceptions about how it should look or uh, who's going to like it or what are they going to think of me. And, you know, it goes from, I think, in my experience, being creative goes from personal to impersonal. Like, the, where I get stuck is when I think it's all about me. But when things start really happening is when I am asking what wants to come through. I love that. I'll I'll share one more thing. Um, Keith Johnstone, who is the, he has a great book too called Impro, which is one of the foundational books of, um, in the world of improv. Um, He uh, was told, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, that he was going to go blind. He hasn't, which is good news. But he was told he was going to go blind. And at the time that he was told that, he said, I, I'm going to start drawing faces. He didn't want to forget faces. So he said, I'm going to draw faces. And then he said, but I'm terrible at faces. I'm terrible at drawing faces. So I'm going to draw 5,000 of them. Because he said, if I draw a hundred of them or 300 of them, I'll just get depressed because <laughs> I'm terrible at it and they'll be bad. But if I draw 5,000 of them, then when I draw a thousand faces and they're bad, that'll be okay because I'm just, I've just drawn a thousand. I still have 4,000 more to go. So he drew 5,000 faces and then he put them all in a book. And there's a great documentary about him coming out that's just that's going to be released soon. But you can see clips of it online where he just goes back and he says, oh, yeah, you have to go sort of by hundreds to see any progress. They all sort of look the same until you get like, you know, into like album after album. He said, you can see progress. But then he also goes back and he can say like, oh, these first ones were good. You know, these were really creative or there was something really interesting here. But in the moment... So it wasn't true that he needed to write, make 5,000 faces until they were good. But what it allowed him to do was let go of his censor or his judgment voice in the moment because he was releasing it. He's like, I'll judge it later. It doesn't have to be good yet. Oh, that's a great story. We have time for one or two more questions if they're out there, any comments? Otherwise, we can keep on forever, I think. Speaking of books, there's a book called uh, The Comedy Bible, and it's how to write stand-up comedy, how to get a comedy act together, which she always talks about your editor, your internal editor, which, again, is, you know, getting past the preconceived, you know, editing yourself, just let it go. It's I recommend that book. I've got Judy, I can't remember her last name right now, but I have both her books downstairs, but it's called The Comedy Bible. And, you know, I'm sure some of the exercises that are there in 
the comedy Bible are applicable to all the arts. Again, you know, that self editing that your editor, your self editor, cutting, you know, cut that out. <laughs> That's, I don't have much to say. I just like the Bible. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> I, you know, one other thing I, I would love to get your take on is uh, Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Big Magic, I think it's there, maybe it was on one of her TED Talks, talk of, talks about how she writes like a farmer. She just gets in there and tills the soil and plants the seed and she's just in, she's just doing it. Yep. And it doesn't really she's not evaluating every little thing as she does it, every little piece. So I wondered if you could just speak to that idea of just getting in the game. You made me think of two things. I'll leave you with two stories. I think we have time in four minutes. Um, one is uh, I was doing a storytelling workshop with engineers and uh, one of them told this great fable. His boss wanted everybody to tell very serious stories about like how they're using, you know, about engineering in context. But he told this story instead, and it was the best story. It was the only story I remember from the entire workshop. Uh, he told this story about how a farmer would, would, you know, had a big field and every day would go out and till the soil and gather his crops and, you know, harvest. One, but one day, one season, he went out and he was walking out to his field and a rabbit ran by and slammed into a tree and died in front of him. And that night he had the most delicious rabbit stew for dinner. And it was the best meal he'd had in years and he loved it. So the next day he went out and he sat by the tree and he waited for a rabbit to run into the tree and die. Right. And didn't happen. So he waited again the next day and the next day and the next day. And meanwhile, his crops died and he didn't harvest them and the fields went fallow and, you know, winter came and he starved because the rabbits never came. <laughs> and, and I love that story. <laughs> so then we talked about how you could use that story in the engineering context because his manager was like, wow, well, would you ever use that story in an engineering context? But I love it in terms of creativity too, right? That every now and then you have these great moments of inspiration and an improv show, or if you're a writer or, you know, however it is where like a rabbit slams into a tree and you're like, that was the most amazing pun. Or we just did this amazing scene where we were talking or, you know, yes, I sat down and the book came fully formed into my head and into the keys, right? But usually it doesn't work that way, right? Usually there's not a rabbit slamming into the tree. So you can't just like go sit by the tree and wait for the rabbit to slam into it. You have to show up every day in the field and like, you know, till the soil, like a little bit to do. Yeah, you had to play the game. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, as an improviser, you get up on stage, you do these scenes. And at first, every scene that I would do, I would worry about and I would obsess over. And if it was good, that was great. And if it was bad, that was terrible. And then at some point, I did enough improv so that my batting average, I had enough at bats so that my batting average wasn't affected that much by each scene, I realized. You know, if you've done a thousand then if it's great or if it's terrible, it just doesn't matter, right? As opposed to like, if you've done four, then your batting average will swing wildly by a hundred points. And so I think that's part of the trick too, to creativity is just do it enough so that you can do some crappy ones and it doesn't matter. I thought what you were saying at first was batting, B-A-D-D-I-N-G, not no, batting, but it's really. the same thing, basically. Right? Make enough quilts so they can have some bad ones, right? Right. <laughs> so, Kat, this has been a pleasure talking with you. Can you tell us if you've got anything coming up that we should all know about and how people can reach you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Um, well, we're at uh, Coppet, K-O-P-P-E-T-T dot com or Mopco, M-O-P-C-O dot org. We are doing shows on Friday and Saturday nights at eight o'clock Eastern time at live dot Mopco dot org. And uh, so you can see our stuff right now there. So that's happening now as we speak. Yep. 
The virtual experience. The virtual experience. That's great. Well, thank you so much again for being on the call and we will stay tuned to what you're doing next. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody.